Hello and welcome to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM, the College of Naturopathic Medicine. I'm your host, Michelle Sanchez. Today I'm joined by iridologist and herbalist Peter Jackson Main, who is going to be talking to us about iridology. He'll be explaining what iridology is and how the colours, markings and structure of the iris can provide valuable insight into your health. Learn how your eyes can uncover potential health risks and also show behavioural and personality traits. After graduating from Cambridge University in the 1970s, Peter committed himself to a lifelong path of investigating and training in natural medicine through many modalities, including herbal medicine, iridology and naturopathy. He's been teaching at CNM since 2003 and is currently the Herbal Medicine Course Director, Academic Director and the Head of Research at the College. Peter practices at his clinic in London and is the author of the best-selling book Practical Iridology, which is a core text on CNM's iridology course. Peter has also contributed to several books and research papers on herbal and naturopathic medicine. Hi, Peter. Thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to have you on the show. Great to be here, Michelle. Thanks. Now, iridology is such a fascinating modality, and there's so much we can learn about our bodies and our health simply by looking at our eyes. But before we get into the nitty-gritty of iridology, please can you tell us a bit about yourself, your experience as a practitioner, and your role at CNM? Of course. Uh, yeah, I've been in practice for about 30 years now, and I, I'm in private practice, that is, but also teaching. I'm mainly a herbalist and a naturopath, and I use iridology as my as one of my major diagnostic techniques. I have a few others up my sleeve as well. Um, I describe myself as a traditional medicine practitioner in the sense that the style of treatments that I like are pretty much out of vogue in general terms these days, but there's still, I think, a good healthy interest in it, and I think that's proved by what's going on at CNM too. So at CNM, I'm the course director for the Herbal Medicine Diploma Pathway, uh, which is degree-level training in herbal medicine. And I also have a hand in teaching for naturopathy, and of course I, I do the iridology course as well. Uh, but I'm also the overall academic director of the college, which isn't really a very tough job. It just means that I have oversight over a number of other uh, the courses that we run, and I have a role to play in ensuring that they're all sort of set at the right level and that they're all sort of uh, running in tandem with each other nicely. Excellent. And you do a lovely herbal walk at the college as well, don't you? Well, I've done a lot of uh, filmed herb walks, if those are the ones that you mean, where I go out into the countryside or we've done a, a few in botanical gardens mm-hmm. uh, around the place. We've got one in Cambridge here and one in Wakehurst in Sussex. So I've done that sort of thing, out and about, sort of introducing people to plants. Uh, we do have a, a herb garden at the college in London that we are very proud of and the students maintain that for us. It's a really good learning tool for them as well because they get to know all the plants uh, direct, direct contact. It really is. So now tell us about iridology. What Can you explain what it is and how it works? Yeah, this was a um, method of, uh, we call it diagnosis, but I'm not too keen on that term for various reasons that might become obvious. But it arose in the mid-19th century with one or two sort of isolated researchers coming up with this idea that by looking deeply in detail at the patterns and the colours that appear in the iris, we can draw certain conclusions about health status and health trends or patterns. 
it wasn't fully understood at the time, interestingly enough. It was very much a sort of, you know, if you see this mark, there must be a problem sort of thing. And we now know that that isn't true. So it's a little bit confusing. This is why one of the reasons perhaps it's been a little bit misunderstood. A lot of people have tried to research it and found that it doesn't work. And the reason is because there's this hard and fast association between what we might call a diagnosis and on the other side of the spectrum, the sort of constitutional risk factors, if we can call them that. So the way I usually explain it very simply in class is by saying, you know, if you think about your, your mum and dad, for example, and you ask yourself, you know, what, what are their health patterns like? What did they suffer through the course of their life? What kind of medical interventions became necessary? And then you start thinking about yourself and you can probably, in many cases, we can sort of start seeing some of the similar things happening to us as well. And this is what we call the notion of constitution. In other words, it's your makeup, really. It's the way that you're put together at birth as mm -hmm. a result of your genetic inheritance. Okay, And that's the way we generally explain iridology now is that the iris is a... Uh, a readout of genetic possibilities. That doesn't mean that it's set in stone. It means that there, there are going to be some areas where if you're not paying attention or if you live in a way that puts pressure or stress on those areas, then you might end up with a problem. So we look at the eyes and we can say, okay, so very, very general things like there might be a tendency towards digestive problems here, or there might be a tendency towards immune problems, or there might be a tendency towards blood-related problems like anemia or blood sugar or that sort of thing. And by the way, those three categories that I've just mentioned cover nicely, actually, they cover the three major color types. These are broad categories, of course, but I know you're going to ask me about that yet, so I thought I'd get that in there. No, that leads us on nicely. So tell us about the, the iris types, because yes, you do have the three main types. Can you explain each iris colour type and what each one means? I mean, there are basically, we say there are three main categories or types uh, in terms of colour. And we would say they're blue, hazel, or pale green, or a mixture of brown and green. That's quite a big category because it can be quite pale, but they can, by, by the same token, sometimes be quite dark as well. And then there's the true dark brown iris, which is actually the dominant type on the planet as a whole, because it's very much involved with people who have darker skins, for example, and people from Asia and the Far East and, and those kind of places where you find people with the very, very dark brown eyes, and they predominate on the planet. So the blue type is, interestingly at this time, is sort of going out of fashion a bit, especially as people sort of mix and match, because uh, what happens is that if um, you, know, you mate a brown-eyed person with a blue-eyed person, you're quite likely to get a big mixture of things coming out of that. That's what happened with me in my particular case. My mum has dark brown eyes and my dad has uh, blue-grey eyes. And we'll come out with something different. I'm blue-grey, but some of my siblings are sort of mixed or, you know, we call the mixed categories the one, the hazel type the kind of greenish type or brown-green type. So those three types are, are recognised as what we call genotypes. That means they are genetically determined. And just very briefly then, the lymphatic type, which is the blue eye, that word lymphatic has all to do with the immune system, obviously, because the lymph is a big part of the way the immune system transports itself around the body, the white blood cells, the phagocytes, etc. So that's all about lymph and immunity and resistance. And the mixed type in the middle, the greenish-brown hazel type, uh, tend to be all about digestion. And there's a particular pattern where we find that that pigment is located around the pupil, which is the area on the iris chart, which I'll talk about in a while, uh, where we find the reflex to the digestive organs. So that pigment 
on top of sitting on top of the digestive reflex, so to speak, warns us that digestion might be a bit sluggish. And then the final type, the dark brown type, a big tendency in these types to develop blood-related disorders like diabetes, high cholesterol, anemia, and that sort of thing. And actually, that can be statistically demonstrated. You know, the tendency towards diabetes, for example, is very much higher in people with dark brown irises. Mm -hmm. So those are the three major categories. Of course, they're big categories. You know, there are 7 billion inhabitants of the planet. I think probably about 4 billion have the dark brown iris, and the, the remaining 3 billion is equally distributed between blue and mixed. But they're big categories. You know, a lot of people share those concerns. So it's only the start of what we do in iridology because we then have to look at the texture of the iris. It's probably not something you ever think about if you look at somebody's eyes. You know, you can see that they're blue, you can see that they're brown or green or whatever, but you don't think about the really fine detail. And that's where it gets really clever. Yeah, I can imagine. And it's when you do see different irises, there's some really complex structure fibers in there, isn't there? Tell us more about the fibers. Yeah, well, it's the fibre pattern that really gives us what we call the iris print. Uh, it's a bit like fingerprint. And actually, it has been found, you know, the iris pattern has been used biometrically, like fingerprints, mm. to identify people. So your iris print is completely unique to you. It's even more unique than your fingerprints, actually, because your fingerprints will give you, I think, something like 17 points of similarity that's enough to identify you but with the iris we can plot up to 200 in the two irises together so there's a lot of detail there and it's actually these iris prints can also fall into particular patterns that we recognize as what we call constitutional types and the interesting thing about this one is that uh, these types are not only about sort of physiological things. So there's one, for example, that's about the nerve system. There's another one that's about the endocrine or hormonal system and so forth. But they also tend to describe the way people think and react to the world and behave in the world. So they are sometimes called behavioral types. So it doesn't mean that the behavior is prescribed by them, but it means that your responses to the world fall into particular patterns. So for example, we all know the people who just, they don't like to hang around or think about things too much or feel things too much. They just like to get on with it. They're very kinesthetic. So that type we call neurogenic, they tend to live on their nerves, for example. And there's another type that's much, much more laid back than that. You know, they instinctively feel, well, if I do that, I'm going to probably exhaust myself. So I'm not going to go there. So they're very good at taking care of themselves, even though nominally they don't have that kind of robust strength. So you can see these kind of patterns pointing towards, uh, not only towards particular risk factors, if you like, or the possibility of health problems in certain areas, but also in terms of how uh, the way we use our bodies, the way we uh, live our lives, and the way we respond to life can actually feed into those situations. So for example, with the neurogenic type, very strong types, these very, you know, very resilient, I call them the high resistance types, but actually they can crash really badly simply by not paying attention by just being too full on and too manic, if you like, and, and not taking appropriate breaks or looking after themselves. So it really enables us as practitioners to get a handle not only on, you know, the sort of potential genetic physiological patterns or patterns of illness and health, but also how people sort of feed into that with the way that they like to live and the way that they generally approach life. So it's like looking at what makes people tick, if you like, as well. Mm -hmm. And that's really important because naturopathy, of course, is very much all about looking at the person and not just the disease. 
That's so fascinating. So with a neurogenic type, for example, how would you, obviously without looking at the eye picture in front of us, what are the characteristics of that that, that people might identify with in terms of the iris? Is it a specific marking or is it, what does it look like? It's actually, yeah, it's, a, it's an overall pattern. And interestingly enough, these people don't really have many markings. They are distinguished by the fact that they have very few markings as such. So they don't have any of the little holes in the texture that we sometimes find, Okay. for example. They're remarkably smooth, tight-knit fiber structure. Sometimes we call them silk textured because silk mm. is very, very fine. It's also quite, you know, it's, it's fine, but it's also very strong. And that's the thing about the neurogenics. They're very, they are on one level very, very sensitive. In fact, it's that sensitivity that motivates them a lot of the time. Neurogenic people are very outwardly focused. They're very altruistic. They'll do anything for you. They're the people who sort of make things work properly in offices mm-hmm. and work environments. They're the people who are the real workhorses. Uh, and many, many uh, neurogenic people in the caring professions, for example. So they're less focused on themselves and their problems. They're, they're more focused outwards on other people. And that's an interesting one, because when you think about the opposite type to that, where lots and lots and lots of markings tend to be very focused on themselves, maybe because they have this sense of, you know, I have a few more risk factors than uh, average, and so I must take care of myself. And the fault with the neurogenics, of course, is that they can, on the side of uh, failing to look after themselves properly. And they have this, I mean, if you meet a blue-eyed one, particularly, you'll recognize them instantly, they have very, very piercing blue eyes quite often because actually when you look at the iris the iris is not blue the iris of a blue-eyed person is not blue it's very interesting one this Uh, next time you meet a blue-eyed person ask them if you can have a a close-up look i will (laughs) at their eyes and what you're going to see is that the fibers that make up that blue eye are actually white and the blue is a sort of, it's a bit like the sea, you know, the sea isn't really blue, but it reflects the sky. And actually, uh, it's a bit complicated to go into this, but there is a reason why blue eyes are blue, but it's coming up from behind all the fibres. So it's almost like an impression of blue, but it's not true blue, which is really, really interesting. And if you can think of it this way, the more fibres there are pressed together, and if the fibres are white, then the brighter or paler blue the eyes going to be. So those people with really, really pale blue eyes, they're probably neurogenics. Mm, fascinating and how about the people that have got you know they look sort of not holy but you know they've got those kind of very yeah. fibers that have got lots of holes in them what's that indicative of well that could be a couple of things if it's in a particular pattern and uh, there's a particular type where there's a pattern of those holes they're called crypts around the center of the iris around the pupil and that can actually be a hormonal picture that can actually we can often find those markings uh, directly on the major hormonal organs like the pituitary the adrenals the pancreas the reproductive organs the thyroid for example so we find those markings there would indicate that there is a kind of a level of not imbalance exactly but instability maybe of the hormonal organs so we might find energy levels fluctuate a lot we might find our ability to regulate our blood sugar which is obviously one of the jobs of the pancreas is a little bit wayward and quite often these are people who also have a a sort of higher than average emotional response to the world you know they can get angry quickly or they can get sad quickly you know they wear their hearts on their sleeves you know you always know how they are because they don't hide it and that's also you know connected 
associated with hormones as well. You know, people, when you say to somebody you're hormonal, what you generally mean is you're moody. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they can be the moody ones. But, um, you know, the, the plus side of that is they can also be very joyful and heart-centered people as well. And then the really coarse texture where the whole iris is full of, full of holes, if you like, <laughs> looks a bit like a string vest. This is the type we call the unkind way of referring to it would be connective tissue weakness, which is the official term. But actually, I prefer to call them survivor adjuster types, which was actually a term coined by one of my teachers, Farida Sharan. And I think it's a lovely way of describing these people. They're the people who will make the adjustments in their lives because they know that if they don't, if they live like everybody else, if they live like a neurogenic, for example, if they're completely, you know, burning the candle at both ends and all of that sort of stuff, then they're going to get into trouble pretty quickly. So they're very good at gauging the territory in front of them and deciding, actually, I'm not going to go there. So they kind of make adjustments. It's a bit like uh, one of the ways I describe this is, you know, if you, get, if you get a hurricane blowing up, it's better to be a reed that bends in the wind than a stout post that gets ripped up and mm-hmm. chucked around the place. So that, that really describes the connective tissue types. And how about people, you know, some people you see them and they've got like just this random dots in their eyes or they could be quite prominent dots or they've got these rings around their eyes because that's something to do with skin as well isn't it yeah there are several ring types actually if we start with those there's the dark outer rim which again you can quite often see in somebody who's got very pale eyes uh, and that is called the scurf rim and scurf of course is all about the skin so it's about the condition of the skin and whether whether the skin functions properly as an eliminative organ but also circulation in the skin, lymphatics and that sort of thing. And people with that sign very often develop actual skin problems, for example, most commonly eczema, actually, but a few other things as well. So ring signs, are there are some more. There's one that, that points towards the possibility of anemia. There's another one that points towards the possibility of um, stagnation in the veins, i.e. varicose veins, things like that. And there are rings also that point towards the possibility of excessive nervous tension. These are called nerve rings, uh, and they can be seen quite frequently uh, as well. But the interesting phenomenon that you mentioned at the start of that, which was the little dots, these are actually additional pigments. So we've talked about the basic colour of the iris, so whether it's blue or dark brown or something in the middle. But we haven't really talked about other kinds of pigment that we can see. And there's a there's quite a wide spectrum, actually. They can go from very pale yellow right the way through the yellow-orange spectrum into reds, red-browns, browns, and even almost black, and point towards specific organs. So, for example, pale yellow, which usually appears as a sort of wash over the iris, which can actually make it look a bit greenish, is usually a kidney sign. Stronger yellows uh, going into browns or oranges even uh, are signs for the liver and the gallbladder. Bright orange is a sign for the pancreas and the possible blood sugar issues. And as the colours get darker, we're going into sort of more and more sort of deep levels of perhaps needing to detoxify. These are colours that indicate that the liver detox mechanisms might need a bit of attention or the bowel, because a lot of the enzymes that we have in the liver to do the detoxing also exist in other places, notably the large intestine. So these are signs that we need perhaps to address our house cleaning (laughs) on a more regular basis. (laughs) Not to say that they'll go away if you do it they're always there to remind you that that's your constitutional risk if you like and the really dark black ones are actually about lymph and immunity as well if you have people with dark black marks in their eyes they're not that common 
actually, but that can also mean that the immune system can be a bit shut down. People like that generally say things like, oh, I never get colds, you know, I never get ill. But then when they do get ill, they come up with something, you know, really, really serious. So if you catch that ahead of time, you can see how useful this is. You know, if you catch ahead of time that somebody needs to pay attention to a particular area of their um, bodily functions, if you like, then you can teach them ongoing how to take care of that. So it's not just about curing somebody once they've got a problem. It's also about giving people the information they need to avoid the problems in the first place. Definitely. It's, you know, a prevention tool that you would use in clinic to help people. I mean, quite often people coming into clinic when they've got, you know, serious or chronic conditions, it'd be very handy for somebody to go and do an iridology consultation so they can, as you say, take the measures to kind of um, improve their health and prevent these things from happening. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I actually think the parents should do it, have, have their children stand or screen so that they can sort of set things up for them on that level too. You know, ideally, we would have a situation in which more people knew about this. And that was really part of the point behind my book when it was commissioned by my publisher. It was really giving people the information so that it would empower them to take care of themselves. You know, it's not that easy, actually, because there's a lot to learn. There's a lot of theory. There's a lot to learn. But I think it kind of works well on that level works well on the level of a book for students, a you know, textbook as well. But it has been very well received by the general public too. Yeah, I have your book and I had that when I was studying. It's very easy to understand. The pictures are fantastic and good to follow. And it's once you see the pictures and the explanation, it really kind of brings it all together and makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, well, that's, that's good feedback. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Natural Health with CNM. Still to come, I talk to Peter about specific markings in the iris and how they relate to a person's health and what signs to look out for in the whites of your eye. Are you or a loved one struggling with health issues? Would you like to change career and become a natural therapist? CNM offers a wide range of short courses and diploma training both online and in class. Contact us today for a limited time to save 10% on short courses using the code PODCAST. Visit www cnmpodcast.com. Now, talk to us about the Irish chart. So you did touch on it briefly before. I know that's um, something that iridologists use. I mean, you've talked about these specific markings. If they're in a particular place, it could mean endocrine or nervous system. So tell us about the Irish chart. Yes. Uh, now, this was set up quite early on in the development of iridology. Uh, one of the first iridology researchers was a young man called Ignaz von Petschley, who later became a homeopath. And then he actually also trained as a doctor because he was getting so many challenges from the medical profession that eventually he said he got tired of it. And he said, right, I'm going I'm to be a doctor now. And that was really useful because what that enabled him to do was to do a lot of research in hospitals and also in mortuaries, actually, as well correlating what he was seeing in the iris with the conditions that the patients were presenting with. And that enabled him to build up what we now know as the iris chart. And in my book, I think there's a copy of the very first iris chart that was ever made by him. And it's all in German, by the way, so you have to, <laughs> you won't be able to read it terribly easily. But if you do read it, and if you can read it, then and you compare it with the modern charts, you'll see that not a lot has changed. Uh, he got it pretty much right. And that's been sort of validated and corroborated by a century and a half of research since he originally did it. And there have been a few little changes here and there. And there have been some attempts to sort of completely rewrite it, but they generally haven't been successful. We, we've always come back to a chart that's very, very similar to that original one. 
I did my own chart for the book and I've updated it recently. Um, and it's basically something that's useful once you've done what I call the overall constitutional analysis, the patterns, the color, etc. Then you can go to look at the more individual signs and you want to know what they're pointing to. So, of course, you have a map that alerts you to whether you're looking at the liver, for example, the lungs, the heart, the brain, and so forth. So that if you see a marking there, you can start to ask questions about that particular organ and look for any signs of potential problems as well. And that can be remarkably accurate. You know, I mean, lost count of the times when I've actually said, I've noticed a tiny little mark somewhere and I've said, hmm, what's going on with your right knee? And they've said, oh my goodness, you know, I've got this history of, of knee injuries and surgery, etc., etc." So it doesn't always work 100%, but a lot of the time it does. A guideline, you know, something that iridologists can work with. So how would an iridologist carry out a consultation? Are there any specific tools they need or apparatus? Yes, we, we need to be able to photograph the iris. And I like to do this because, you know, you can do it with, a, you know, the simplest equipment is a torch with a magnifier on it. And that's enough. And that's how we teach students to do it because it's cheap. Now, everybody can get one of those. It's not, you know, it's not going to break the bank, hopefully. But uh, as you get into the subject, of course, uh, you require a little bit more depth and comfort, actually. You know, it's not terribly comfortable to shine a bright light in someone's eyes for, a, you know, a few minutes on end. It's not terribly comfortable for the individual either. So taking pictures, since I've been an iridologist, the technical advantages have multiplied. I mean, I was working with a massive great camera system that was almost too heavy to hold. You know, you had to sort of build it, put it on a tit on a stand and then there'd be a chin rest for the patient. And you get very good pictures. Most of my book was illustrated with that, and it's a conventional camera system working with 35mm film. And now, of course, since digital, and I was in on one of the first ever digital iridology cameras that was produced, um, I, we bought. And that's just really gone from strength to strength. Now I can even get half decent pictures on an iPhone All right. uh, with the right techniques. Uh, so that's how much digital photography... And, I, and uh, during lockdown, of course, when people couldn't come and see me, I was getting people to take pictures of their own eyes, send them through to me, and then we do a session online, which was amazing because it meant that I could work during lockdown. And that was that was remarkably successful. Sometimes people weren't too you know clever with the photography, but I got some really, really good pictures from some people. There are specific pieces of kit. I'm an agent in the UK for one particular setup, which is called a DinoLight, which is a digital microscope. You plug it into, you know, it's USB enabled, you plug it into your computer and it, you have the software on your computer and it just kind of puts everything together. And the advantage of that in a consultation setup is that you've got the pictures there instantly for the patient. And what I find with that is that when the pictures are in front of the person, the messages that you're giving them are much more meaningful. We're, most of us are visual people. We learn by what we see. And it's a powerful image. The iris is a powerful image. I know a lot of artists. My wife's an artist, and she's done work with uh, the images and even quite detailed images from the deep interior of the iris have, have given her inspiration for some of the work that she's done. So it's very, very visual. And I find when patients uh, get faced with that, it's almost like a, an analogue of themselves, if you like. It's a little microcosm of themselves they're looking at. And as you take them on a tour through it, it's an amazing experience for anybody to have, actually. And usually it's the best part of the consultation. Everybody looks forward to that. Um, and sometimes I'll do a whole consultation based on that. You know, if somebody hasn't got anything wrong with them in inverted commas they haven't come to see me because they've got some horrible disease they've come to see me just because they want that information and we could spend the whole session looking at the iris and exploring it and asking questions about it and then of course giving advice and I imagine that it also can help you tailor your treatment protocols as a herbalist and naturopath as well absolutely yeah 
Yeah, I've got another book planned, actually. I'm not sure whether I'm going to have time to write it because uh, <laughs> CNN keeps me very busy. Um, but it's it's called The Iridology Herb Prescriber. And I'm going to write that with my partner, actually, because we do a lot of work. She works for CNN, too. And we do a lot of work really coaching students in the use of this technique in the herbal clinic, particularly. And it's a lovely idea that the herbs that you want to use are actually suggested the iris and it just works so well um so we're going to perhaps write a obviously very good book for herbal medicine students but hopefully something that will be of wider interest as well fantastic you've got to get writing that one that sounds great (laughs) yeah and we'll pop a link to your other book in the show notes as well for people to go and check out lovely thank you so you can also tell a lot about a person's health from their sclera like the whites of the eyes and the pupil as well can you talk to us about that Yes. Well, sclerology, which is the similar kind of uh, discipline to iridology, really, um, deals with the signs and markings that, per- that occur in the white of the eye. It's pretty similar, in fact. I mean, it's almost like you, if you expand the iris chart outwards so that the middle of it is the iris and then everything outside of that is the chart, uh, you can map the organs in a very similar way with sclerology too. The kind of markings that we see, they're different because generally they're going to be vascularizations, which means broken blood vessels and things like that. Occasionally you get fatty blobs and, uh, and other things too. But these signs are considered in a way to be more or less stable than iris signs. Iris signs really don't change very much. You know, They're there from soon after you're born and they'll stay there until your dying day. Whereas the sclera can change quite a lot. Um, so the advantage perhaps of sclerology is it can give you a little bit more information about acute situations. The pupil is very interesting because the size and shape of the pupil is very much determined by the central nerve system and the setting of the central nerve system and also the autonomic nerve system as well. So, uh, for example, a small pupil will indicate that somebody is sort of dominant in the parasympathetic modality, uh, whereas large pupils indicate what we call sympathetic otonia, which is where the sympathetic nerve system is dominant. And again, this has implications for the way people approach the world and, and their behavior. So people with very large pupils tend to be very outgoing, very demonstrative, very hyperactive in a way like children children all have big pupils and people with small pupils tend to be very reserved very mistrustful very cautious you know not giving much away and then further than that the shape of the pupil if you can get really good photography and you can trace the border of the pupil you get a lot of information about the spinal system so i can actually diagnose spinal misalignments in an individual which might have other consequences you know if you've got a vertebra of the spine out of alignment it's putting pressure on a nerve that feeds an organ and that organ might be uh, suffering as well so it's quite a good addition to the general diagnostics that we do but we can tell which exact vertebra it is i've done this um, I, I like to do this with osteopaths because most osteopaths don't really rate iridology so i send my patients to their osteopaths and i say tell them you've got a subluxation at c7 and they do and of course (laughs) they they scoff mightily until they examine the patient and find out that i was right oh my goodness yeah uh, so that is quite a powerful way of uh, an extra tool if you like that we can add to what we do you need good photography for that there's no you can't do that on an iphone generally speaking That's very powerful. So you would need one of those specific cameras that you mentioned before to do that. That's right. Yeah. Now, just to finish up, can you tell us a little bit about the iridology courses that CNM offers, the ones that you run? Yeah, absolutely. Now, we offer a full professional diploma training 
at CNM, but it starts with the six days of iridology that we put into the naturopathy course. And that's a year one thing. So they all get that very, very early on. In naturopathy, we study a lot of the sort of naturopathic modalities. We study detoxification. We do a little bit of uh, traditional Chinese medicine because that's a good energetic system to ground people in the idea that the body isn't just about stuff. It's also energy as well. And then when we get to the iridology, which is the end part of that, uh, we teach them the theory, obviously. We also give them a lot of practice in how to read each other's eyes, and we get them doing a case study on each other. So that's their assessment. And that means that they can do the case study under a certain amount of supervision. So it's the first time many of them have done such a thing. So um, it's a good way of starting because they're going to have to write many, many more as they go through their major diploma, whether it be herbal medicine, acupuncture, homeopathy, etc. All of them have that requirement to write involved case studies so this is where it starts we start them off with the iridology case study and if they want to stick there they can they've always got the tool the skill to use certainly uh, we would expect to see them using them in our student clinics but if they want to take it on to a full professional diploma then every autumn september october november usually we run the what we call the level two or post-grad iridology course and this is where you can upgrade your skills to that of a full fully functioning iridologist uh, a little bit of extra theory we add the, the sort of what i refer to with the, the sort of behavioral psychological stuff onto that as well so that people have a, a means of assessing other levels of a patient's presentation and we also get them to write a lot more case studies they have to do another nine at that point as well so by the time they come out of that they're really really competent at uh, doing readings and uh, making assessments and that will get you a membership of the in in the uk it's called the guild of naturopathic iridologists which actually isn't just uk it's international as well and it's one of the uh, a few bodies that represent uh, the professional interests of um, iridology and that'll get you a uh, membership of the gni great and we'll pop some links in the show notes to the courses so you can find out some more information yeah that'd be great yeah now if somebody wanted to go and get an iridology assessment or consultation where would the best place for them to go do you offer this at the student clinic at cnm and obviously in your own practice Yes, we do. We have a, a limited space for people to come in as models for the iridology course, the advanced course, which I'm starting this weekend, actually. Ah. Um, so the, there are limited opportunities for people to come and get one there. Very limited, probably one or two slots only. But they can come to any of the student clinics where we use iridology, particularly the herbal clinic, the naturopathic clinics. And I would say if you want to go and see a fully-fledged professional and get the real deal, you should go to the Guild website. That is GNI international.org and uh, they run a, a register and uh, they've got a little widget on their website that enables you to put in where you are and it will come up with a neurologist near you. Fantastic and where can people find out more information about you and the work you do Peter? Well I've got a website and it is uh, www.thenaturalcenter.com and I always point out that center the natural center which is all one word it's R-E at the end, not the American way, E-R. So thenaturalcenter.com. Also, go on the CNN website because you can read about me there as well. Yes, there's lots of information about Peter on the website. And we'll share some links to some pages, like the Herbal Medicine page and the Erosology page, so people can find some more information. Lovely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Peter, to share all your knowledge and experience. It's been really insightful and I hope our listeners are, have got a lot out of learning more about iridology. Well, yeah, I hope so too. And, uh, and come and check it out. You know, come and, um, yeah, 
get in touch with us at CNM or uh, get in touch with me personally through my website. My website's got a button that you can ask to have a consultation with me as well. So we're all fully functioning. Great, and all the best with the new book. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm actually also going to reissue the old one. That's the other thing that's happening next year, I think. I'm in talks with a publisher as we speak. So yeah, a few things coming up next year, I think. Well, all the best with everything. Thank you, Michelle. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. And a big thank you to Peter for sharing his wealth of knowledge with us. You can find all the information discussed today and more about Peter in the show notes on the podcast website at www.cnmpodcast.com. And if you're interested in learning more about iridology, naturopathy or herbal medicine, check out CNM's range of short online courses and diploma training on the CNM website at www.naturopathy-uk.com. We have a series of open events coming up in the next few months and you can find all the details in the events section of the website. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, make sure you subscribe through your favourite podcatcher so you don't miss any future episodes. While you're there, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or review as this helps us when creating new content.